You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit to inspire me, your preacher, and all of us to hear your words so that we might see and know Jesus and what that means for each of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm making good on my promise from last week. If you're here, remember this is part two of a a two-part sermon on uh, the Battle of Jericho here in uh, chapter six of Joshua And last week I talked about the story's uh, individual implications for each of us, especially the first two-thirds of that chapter, which is why we're reading the the final verses here. And so, as I said last week, we'll focus on some communal implications of this story that are highlighted in these verses. Uh, And as I said before, there's so much more that I can say, so much more I want to say, but... uh, this is what we have. This is where the Spirit has led me, uh, and uh, we'll do it again in several years. Um, last time, I talked about the conquest of Jericho, particularly why Jericho was devoted to total destruction. And if you weren't here, you can, you know, if this has perplexed you, maybe my explanation last week would be helpful. Uh, the recording's online, um, so you can look that up and hear about the, the devotion to total destruction and how the story helps us understand God's holiness and our unrighteousness in in the face of God's holiness, and what that means and the consequences of it. And uh, because there was a provision for the Canaanites to repent, uh, this means that this story is by no means an ethnic uh, genocide, but it is a spiritual battle of justice between good and evil played out in history. And it's not unique. This has happened uh, before, and it will happen again when uh, Christ comes again. And as I said, I offered implications for each of us personally to take our sinfulness and God's righteous righteous judgment seriously, to repent, and to live in light of our redemption, and to recognize we are heralds of the message of redemption for all the world, just as Jesus explained 2,000 years ago to his disciples uh, before he ascended into heaven. And now I want to turn our sights on the communal implications of the story. Um, and uh, the remaining verses of chapter 6 are helpful for this perspective. So let's look briefly at the story's end here today. Of course, uh, last time we heard that God commanded Israel to ceremonially march around uh, Jericho for seven days, and on the seventh day they marched seven times, and when they were commanded to shout, the walls by a miracle of God fell uh, uh, into a pile of rubble, And Israel destroyed everything and every person in Jericho except, Joshua said, to spare Rahab and her family and to put the metal goods in the Lord's treasury. And as I explained before, the the metal, it just can't be destroyed. It can be melted down, but it can't be destroyed in the same way as everything else. And so uh, it's put in the Lord's treasury so that people won't uh, be led to idolatry because of it. And today we see in verses 22 through 25, Joshua's order to the two spies who first met her to rescue Rahab. Um, And not just Rahab, but also, as it says here, all who belong to her. 
The salvation here is not individual, but it's, you can think it's communal. It's for a family. And the next major section of the passage is verse 26, all of verse 26, which describes a curse on whoever might rebuild the city of Jericho. And not just the man who rebuilds it, but also his oldest and youngest sons. And so like Rahab's blessing, the curse is not individual, but it's communal. It's familial. And finally, uh, I will not expound on verse 27 uh, in my sermon, but I'll just mention it here. Uh, Verse 27 solidifies the promise that God made. Remember to Joshua back in chapter 1, verse 5, when he said, No man shall be able to stand before you, Joshua, all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And so we see that has happened uh, six chapters later. It also sets up a stark contrast for the story in uh, chapter 7 that's to come. And I'll leave that to James, who's going to preach next week. Um, I'd like to address those first two items in our passage, like I said, highlighting the communal, communal and familial nature of the blessings, the blessing and the curse. So with Rahab, although her father and her brothers are still living, she seems to have become a a matriarch of some sort for her people. She's also a a minor hero in in the whole book of Joshua. She even appears in the New Testament several times. I mentioned this several weeks ago that she's in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ as a great-grandmother of David the king and in the the messianic lineage great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Joseph, and therefore a relative of Jesus Christ. She's also mentioned in Hebrews, in the famous chapter 11 about faith. It says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And in James, and this being Reformation Sunday, heck, why not? In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Just sidebar that I don't think that that contradicts uh, Paul, but I don't have time to get into it. That's for another sermon. Stay tuned. One day we'll preach on James. Um, But here you see that she's mentioned several times in the New Testament as a hero of faith. And we see in uh, the passage, not only did her faith save her individually, but it had familial effects. We're not told whether her family members have saving faith, but along with Rahab, they're, they're incorporated into the nation of Israel because of her. As verse 23 explains, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And what this is, this would have been a sort of uh, a temporary uh, 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 ritual um, purification rite, a sort of initiation Uh, for that family, to sort of quarantine them temporarily before um, coming into Israel. And we know that this wasn't permanent, at least for Rahab, because verse 25 says, she has lived in Israel to this day. She became an Israelite. It's helpful to understand that God often works through families and in families, not just individuals. Uh, Just think, for example, uh, all of Israel is blessed through Abraham. All of Jacob's family is saved by Pharaoh because of his son Joseph. The Messianic lineage is safeguarded through all the descendants of David. 
sometimes often in spite of themselves. Even in the New Testament, especially in Acts, there is an emphasis on the idea of the household. Peter says in Acts 2, explaining to the first, those 3,000 converts at the day of Pentecost, that this promise is for you and for your children. And Paul and Silas tell the Philippian jailer, uh, when he asks what he must do, they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And one of those households in Acts was of a woman named Lydia, much like Rahab, an entrepreneur, a wealthy entrepreneur who converts and has her whole household baptized. And there are many more examples that I can give, uh, including the household codes in Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Peter. We see throughout the Bible God working in families. Uh, It's not just an emphasis in the Old Testament, but also a particular emphasis in the New. So suffice it to say, God is often at work in the Bible through families. And it's often one person who takes the lead for the family, and this leadership is important for the lives of others in the family. The opposite dimension in this passage is the curse on any rebuilder of the city of Jericho. And if you came to church in the morning, we had blind Bartimaeus, and he's outside of Jericho. So we know that somebody rebuilt it eventually. There's a new Jericho. Uh, Verse 26, again, I'll just read it so we see this. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, shall he set up its gates. Um, In the book of Joshua, there are uh, a series of seven stone monuments. I haven't mentioned this yet, but this is throughout the whole book of Joshua. We skipped over uh, Gilgal, but that's the first one. Uh, And the next one's to come with the story of Achan. So people often talk about these seven stone monuments that are heaped up to remember important events in uh, the book of Joshua. Well, the ruins of Jericho isn't usually mentioned in that list of the seven, but it should be an eighth um, stone memorial that we consider in the book. Its stone ruins are to be a symbol of God's judgment on Canaan. Indeed, we later uh, discover in uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, this story. This is several centuries later. Uh, Hiel of Beth- Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So in contrast to the familial blessing, here we have a familial curse. The actions of Hiel have uh, deadly ramifications on his oldest and his youngest sons. As Joshua, or as, as First Kings explains, God through Joshua had warned several centuries earlier. Well, just as God works through families to provide salvation throughout the Bible, there are Uh, cases of curses having uh, familial heritage too. As God said in Exodus 20, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. If you read the history of the kings of Israel and uh, Judah, this is in effect uh, writ large. 
The sins of Jeroboam are passed down for generations on the northern kingdom of Israel. And the sins of Rehoboam are passed down for generations on the southern kingdom of Judah. And this understanding of generational curse was around in Jesus' day too. Remember the disciples uh, asked Jesus about a blind man, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And as Paul explains in Colossians, fathers, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. They may lose heart because of their fathers. So there's a sense that not only the blessing could be passed down as a heritage, but also a curse. And there are more examples that I can give of this, but for the sake of time, I just want to emphasize uh, this, uh, this idea that it's, uh, oh, it's one man's sins are, are not his own, but are collective. The effects may be passed down generationally. And this isn't exclusive. It's not 100%, but it is common. There are exceptions to the case, but it may happen. And with the kings, it was beyond the family. It went across an entire nation. The ramifications are communal. What are we to make of this notion of communal and familial blessing and curse for us? The first thing I want to point out is that we live in, a, in an individualistic age. That our age that you and I live in here in the United States, but probably Western culture in general, is individualistic. And I think that this might be the, uh, the biggest sin of American culture, of how individualistic we are, and that we promote it as a value even. This idea of individual self-expression and identity uh, creation and cultivation, or people talk about identity curation if you're on uh, social media or any other place. Uh, This is why social media blogs and even comment sections on websites are are so popular. And they're just a, a, a vicious cycle because they're vehicles to promote this idea even more. Uh, They're just new means of expressing a latent idea of individualism and an an obsession with identity, personal identity. Individualism is so valued now that it's now the common theme in popular culture. I'm convinced of this. Once I noticed it, I couldn't stop seeing it. In movies, television shows, commercials, all the, the, the new songs, individualism is one of the most common, probably the most common theme. I recently wrote a, a blog post on the, the Mockingbird website, if you know about that, about this, uh, this idea explaining that I can no longer, and this sounds sort of silly, because there, there are some movies that I can watch, but I s- said in this blog post I got a ton of attention. I'm boycotting contemporary family movies. I can no longer watch them, because this idea of individualism is usually like the main point of this expressing myself and promoted as a value. This is a false gospel of just being yourself. And the straw that broke the camel's back for me? A Wrinkle in Time. Did you see the latest one? I mean, there's an older one from several years ago. It was probably made for TV. That's worth watching. I mean, A Wrinkle in Time. It was like a a quasi-Christian allegory and made a new one several years ago. And it is just propaganda for the new age. 
Uh, so I've hardly ever turned a movie off. You know, there are some bad movies out there that I've sort of grit my teeth through, but this, this goes down. One of the few that I just couldn't finish. Um, I, I, to- I turned to my kids and said, this is, uh, I mean, this is, uh, uh, I mean, the, the, the Satan's at work here. <laughs> um, the, the Oprah playing Mrs. Witch says this, and this is when I had, uh, this, actually, just before I turned it off, she says, Oprah says, uh, you just have to find the right frequency and have faith in who you are. And then shortly after that, Zach Galifianakis uh, leads everybody in a yoga circle to find the right frequency, to tap into the universe, to find their true selves so that they can find the answers to defeat evil, right? And I said, no more, I have to turn it off. But that just shows you that this is, uh, this is the theme in so many movies. I mean, just think of uh, Elsa, right? And Frozen, um, you know, let it go. <laughs> Um, just be yourself. Um, I'm not going to hold it back anymore. It's a good movie. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, totally bashing uh, Frozen, but you see it even there. And the main problem here is uh, that we think that we're sovereign individuals, that we are, you know, lone rangers, that um, we're we're islands. Um, this thinking has given a. a, a uh, rise to the idea of the victimless crime. The victimless crime. Have you ever heard that before? Usually this is uh, uh, drug-related or related to sexual acts, including prostitution. Hashtag Rahab, right? Um, a victimless crime is usually has something to do with sex or drugs. Um, but according to the thinking of the Bible, there is no such thing as a victimless crime. Just go ahead, I implore you to remove that from your vocabulary. Because often the victims are those who are related to us who inherit the effects of the so-called victimless crime. On the flip side, individual blessings in our society are often inherited too, for good. And these are things that we often accept. Think of generational wealth or a family's institutional legacy education, manners, and most importantly, faith, actually, despite what people often think. There's a professor that I've often mentioned here named, uh, a sociologist named Christian Smith at uh, Notre Dame University, who's the director of a, a, a research institution called the Center for the Study of Religion and Society. They've done over the past 20 years some of the most groundbreaking sociological research about religion, and it is really good research with a lot of data. And a a bunch of books uh, recently uh, published by Oxford University Press in light of Christian Smith's research, not only by him, but by many other people, including one just last year called Families and Faith, subtitle, How Religion is Passed Down Across Generations by three professors from Southern California of all places. And they all tell us the opposite of what we often think is actually true. We often think that children, especially teenagers, are rebelling against their parents. That's the sort of the common cliche notion, particularly when it comes to something like faith or politics. But folks like Christian Smith tell us that the the research doesn't bear that out. He says this, No other conceivable casual influence comes remotely close to matching the influence of parents on the religious faith and practices of youth. 
Parents just dominate. The most important thing. And I must say that through my own observations, I can uh, corroborate this, that the blessing of family faith is often passed down for generations. Well, each of us are connected to each other as if an, an organism, whether that's in the family or together right here as a community. This congregation, even if this is your first time here and you never come back, we're all connected according to the Bible. This is not only a theme in Joshua for Israel, but it's also the central, a central message of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where he talks about the body of Christ. Therefore, our blessings and curses affect the rest of the body, often in ways that are uh, mysterious and hidden to us, at least in the immediate future. Well, what, can we, what can we make of this beyond the family, beyond the generational legacy of faith in the family? One thing to consider is um, our act of simply gathering here on Sunday. What exactly is happening when we come to church? And who is it for? Is this primarily a spiritual opportunity for individuals who are here alone together in parallel, uh, having an individual spiritual pietistic moment? When we see that we're all connected uh, to each other, that can't be enough. This information should change the way that we approach our gatherings. I know it makes me want to long to be here each week in anticipation for Sunday, to gather together, to want to get to know my brothers and sisters better, to pray with and for them, maybe, maybe even pray about coming to church, to remind them of who we are in Christ, and to connect beyond Sunday and things like that. Finally, what about you as an individual, though? I mean, in light of all that I've said here about community, what about you as an individual? It can be tempting to focus on our quote-unquote personal relationship with Jesus. And that's a fine thing. That's an excellent thing. Don't misunderstand me. But don't be misled to think that your life is what you make of it alone. Your faith, or lack lack thereof, is either a communal blessing or a curse. Or as the Bible tells us, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Namely, that price was God the Father giving up his son as a ransom for you. And not just for you, but for everyone that you know and love and are close to, and even those who you know and can't stand. In verse 24 of our passage, we're told they burned the city with fire and everything in it. They burned the city with fire and everything in it. This is a very brief summary of what God's just judgment on sinners looks like. Yet rather than destroy the world like the city of Jericho, when God came to the world in Jesus Christ, he came to reconcile us to himself. Jesus Christ took on the destruction took on the fire that we deserve. And rather than having a heap of rubble for us as a memorial, we look to the cross of Christ as a reminder of what God has done for all of us, for you, 
for me and for everyone you love. And your faith in this one fact may very well be a blessing for everyone you know and love and spend time with for a thousand generations, or at least until Christ returns again, just as it was for Rahab and her family. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.